All right, John chapter 1. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study, and we're in part 13. Last week we looked at the Word made flesh. We're still going to be in that verse, finishing up some of those verses that are proof text that support that and harmonize with our text. There's also a part of this verse that talks about how that we beheld His glory. Start reading in verse 11. He came into His own... And his own received him not, but as many as did receive him, he gave them authority to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, but were born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Now, last week we looked at the eternal Son of God as the Word of God, as He took on flesh to become the God-man mediator. One person, two natures, sinless humanity, perfect deity, coming together in the only unique person that has two natures, to perform this task of redeeming his people. He is the God-man mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we looked at the first few verses, the first few weeks, we looked at the eternality of Christ, how that he is the eternal son of God. He had no beginning. He has no end. So that blends in with our text, of course. Contextually, as we've been going along, we've been seeing the strength of these messages because We've been looking at them in their context, and it seems, of course, to be stronger because of the support of its own context. We saw the gospel reason that Christ came as the eternal word of God to take on flesh. We saw the gospel reason, and that, of course, was to be a suitable sacrifice. We saw that this was an act of humility. It was an act of humility in that he was on his throne before this happened. As the eternal Son of God, doing what He does in His providence, we see you know, we see in other passages how that He created the world, and He just didn't uh, create it, turn it loose. He runs it. All things were created by Him and for Him, and without Him there was nothing made. And by Him all things consist. It says in Colossians, right before that verse. There we have on the wall about preeminence. But the idea of consisting is it sticks together by him. All things are held together by him. It says in many other verses in different books of the Bible that he runs this earth. Everything is at his disposal, and he just runs it according to the will of God. He upholds, Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Is that a coincidence that he does it through the means of the word of his power? He is the communicator. He's the word. So, You'll see in connection with Christ, wherever you look in the scripture, there's an emphasis of this communication idea because he is the, the logic of God, the, the living logos, the word of God. He communicates. We saw the extreme need of the rescue of God's sheep, that we are so wicked in our sins and we are such transgressors that we need God to come down in the flesh and rescue us. That's what it takes. 
God couldn't have sent an angel to do this task. He couldn't pick people from among men because they were sinners. So it took the eternal Son of God coming down and taking on flesh to, as I used the phrase last week, it was a hands-on rescue mission. He had to get involved. I kind of alluded to some earthly illustrations about how that um, sometimes in a, in a company, and this is rare to see because most of the ones I've been involved with, most people at the top of the company, they don't want to get their hands on anything. They delegate to people. and If they can surround themselves with people that are smart, usually the thing will get done, but you know, a lot of times we'll see us little minions. We'll see things going on and see <laughs> what, what are they thinking? Seems like the little guy sees through a lot of different things. Like, here's what I would do. Boom, 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 boom. And, and I hear people talk at work about things. And I'm, I've thought that for years. So I don't know what they're doing. But God saw the problem. He saw the problem before the problem was created. He was the author of orchestrating the problem happening. So he comes in, he swoops in, knowing that he is the only one that can fix the problem through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was done mainly for God. It's Godward. Christ is a sacrifice to the Father, to his glory. And then we get the benefits, the fruit of that, and the spiritual blessings flow from that. Speaking of spiritual blessings, we looked at the merit of Christ in him coming down, being made flesh. The merit of that action for his people, merited and gathered up spiritual blessings that can later be worked in his people. So the death was for his people so that spiritual blessings could be worked in them. So it would flow out of their lives and they would consciously experience salvation and know who their Savior is. That would be spiritual life, you know, the new birth, faith, repentance. And all the way down to people's different gifts in the church body. And even the church itself is something that Christ providentially, everything was decreed. And he earned those gifts and gave them to his people. And last week we left off talking about two deadly errors on this subject, on the word made flesh. Two deadly errors, and we kind of rushed through at the very end, but the two deadly errors are... Some believe that Christ did not have a body, a physical body. And we had mentioned how that in early church, some of these people were, were the Gnostics. They believed that things were evil, material was evil. So a body, a fleshly body would be evil. So they had this idea that this Christ came without a body. He was a phantom or, or whatever. And that's warned about in First and Second John. Another deadly error is saying that Christ is not God. The first few verses just blow that idea away, how that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. It's simple. It's easy. That's not the only testimony there. But there was a warning, and you don't have to turn there because you did last week. Let me read it real quick. In Second John 1, 7, it said, Many deceivers are entered into the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Look to yourselves so that we may not lose the things which we worked out. Talk about doctrinally. Don't forget the things I taught you guys, me and the other apostles. As we've said many times in this church, as you go along and learn things, gather them up and bring each thing along as you gather it up. Don't just see some kind of little theological nugget. Say, that's pretty neat. Yeah, mm, throw it away. But gather it up and, and make it fit together with the rest of the puzzle but that we might receive a full reward. 
Verse 9 says, Everyone transgressing and not abiding in the doctrine of Christ, evidently part of what we're talking about is the doctrine of Christ, this Christ becoming flesh. Everyone transgressing and abiding not in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. They're not saved. They don't know God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this doctrine, don't receive him to your house and don't speak a greeting to him. Don't say, God bless you, brother. Don't promote him and pat him on his back in his false religion, because it's false religion, because he doesn't have God. Don't say, would you pray for me, brother? Because you don't have the same father. So don't promote him and greet him in a positive way, in a blessed way, like you would believers, like you have fellowship with believers. For he who speaks a greeting to him this way is a partaker in his evil deeds, which would be the transgressing of the doctrine of Christ. And we also mentioned, I just want to say this briefly before I forget, it's important, that we had said that the doctrine of Christ is more broad than just the word made flesh. The doctrine of Christ is the gospel, pretty much the person and the work of Christ. So this was brought up because it was a, a contemporary issue and was a, like a hot button issue in the church of this Gnosticism where they were saying the body was evil. And um, so John's warning against that current controversy. There were more other controversies. We know Paul and Peter and, and, and these others write about them. And if we would put them all together collectively, that's the doctrine of Christ, a more broad spectrum. It's pretty much just the gospel the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he did to save sinners. Turn to Romans 1. I had also mentioned last week that when we started getting to the flow of the last couple messages and we're looking at portions of verses, it's hard to find verses that are isolated just to those portions. You start to find verses that, that have all these points together and you're, you're having a hard time organizing these verses because there's so much overlap which is good. I like it where you find verses and you think there's three verses. That's like six points in the last three or four messages. You know what I mean? Bam. It's all there. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What does it concern? Verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made here. Here's why I brought us here, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. The word was made flesh according to the seed of David. These family trees that are in the scripture, sometimes when somebody's reading them in a message, you're tempted to fall asleep. But look how important it is here. Christ came from the seed of David through that bloodline. And we're going to be looking at the virgin birth here in a minute that will kind of clarify and qualify what this means. He wasn't just human without being God. We have to talk about the virgin birth and things like that in connection with this incarnation. But it was explicitly spoken here. And you'll see it in some of the family lineage as it's listed out in some of the other scriptures, how that it was in that bloodline. David was in there. And verse 4, and declared, notice this, to be the Son of God with power. 
So this word of God that was made flesh, it was declared by the Father. How many times did he say it? We read it in the gospel. This is my son, who I'm well pleased. Hear him. And there are different other spots where that took place. And there was announcements from heaven, God's voice, saying, here's the one. Right? And we know John, we're looking at the Apostle John wrote about John the Baptist, how that he prepared the way. Here's the lamb. Here he is. This is him who we've been waiting for. It was prophesied. So he's declared to be the son of God. Then notice with power. He's not the sissy Jesus that's preached today. That's who's preached today is the sissy Jesus. We've all seen him. We may have believed him in time past. But he is, you could go on describing the physical image that we see in these goofy paintings, but spiritually or in a salvific way, how that he actually accomplished redemption, he got the job done. Not this one that's, as we spoke of, you see the painting of this, who they say is Jesus, is knocking on the heart's door, begging to come in, and the handle's not on his side because it's up to you. The handle's on the other side. You're the one that makes this thing happen. And... So Christ is helpless. Please let me in. And he's slinging his hair, you know, with his blue eyes. He's a sissy. He can't get the job done. So the second part of that verse is verse 4. According to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That resurrection was a sign. The father letting everybody know he succeeded. So in the Gospels, and other books in the New Testament. You'll see all three parts of the Trinity talk about the resurrection of Christ being involved. He talks about, I've got the power to lay down my life and take it up again. You see where the Spirit is involved in the resurrection. You see where the Father has raised him. But the whole idea is, if he failed, he would have remained dead. It would have been a sign that the sacrifice was not accepted. So it was accepted, so he was raised, and then we know what happened after that. He was exalted in the highest spot and place that can ever be exalted on this earth or any earth to come, in this age or any age to come. Uh, The latter part of Ephesians says that. Verse 5, by whom, and here's part of that merit, how the merit flowed from what he accomplished through the Holy Spirit to the church by whom, speaking of Christ, we have received grace. So what he did for us merited what he could do in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have received grace. Here he talks about his own apostleship and, of course, the other apostles. For the obedience to the faith among the nations. Obedience for the faith is not talking about progressive sanctification or some other baloney that some people would like to talk about. It's just talking about gospel obedience, believing the gospel. And it's not like it's conditional. We've already studied that and we'll continue to study that, that God works these things in us. This faith is a gift in that he works it in us, not an offer that we make work. And notice the latter part of there, for his name. Among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ? And we talked about the call, the effectual call. So this is just part, again, of that fruit that flows from that merit. The Holy Spirit is enabled 
to do the work in the center based on the ground for the center that Christ accomplished. To all that are in Rome, verse 7, beloved of God, didn't say everybody in Rome, it's the ones that are beloved of God, those who believe the gospel, called to be saints, there's another qualifier, can't get past that. It didn't say uh, you got to wait to see if the church can collectively vote so you can be a saint, maybe, hopefully, you know. It's your saints, just like in Corinth. Remember, he called those people saints with all their problems that were going on in the church. Getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. We talked about that last week. He called those people saints. He didn't say, hey, you guys got to wait. I got to see the next three or four Lord's Suppers if you can not get crazy in the Lord's Supper. No, they're saints. Sanctified, set apart, consecrated, made holy by God alone. Anyway, Paul speaks grace to them. Now, remember, we just read in 2 John that if a person doesn't have the doctrine of Christ, they don't have God. Well, the Apostle Paul is writing to these people in Rome. Verse 15, he says, I can't wait to come to preach the gospel to you again, you that believe it. I'm craving it, he said in verse 15. It's just like the song talking about telling the story for those that know it best, right? The gospel is just not for initial salvation. It is for us to feed on the rest of our lives and to grow in as we learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here, he says, grace to you. He's saying to them, you guys believe the doctrine of Christ. That's what he's saying. Exactly what he's saying. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So his spirit is bearing witness with their spirit that they believe the same gospel. They worship the same God. And he could, with confidence, call them brothers and sisters in Christ because they had the same gospel. Now, let's go to uh, Genesis 3. Kind of look at some... Um, foretelling of the word made flesh happening remember the context of genesis here the first few first few chapters talk about the beginning of creation what took place and how that god set it up and he said you know you guys can you've got a lot of stuff here you can have whatever you want but there's one thing that you can't have it is i don't want you eating from that tree right over there tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else you can have, don't eat it. But the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Well, the serpent came and tempted Eve and questioned God's word and said to Eve, is that what God said? Really? So there was a questioning of God's word and then Satan followed that up with an outright lie and said, you shall not surely die. The day you eat thereof, you'll be like gods, knowing good from evil. Eve saw the fruit that it was good. She ate it. She passed it on to Adam. Adam willfully, knowingly ate of the fruit to partake of it with his wife, whom he loved. And there's the fall into sin, the transgression that God said, don't eat, they ate. And so they condemned the whole world, as we read in 1 Corinthians and in um, Romans 5. We see that Adam was the federal head and representative of the whole world. Romans 5 is clear on this. 
And when he ate, it was accounted that everyone else ate, and the fruit of that legal condemnation was spiritual corruption. And that's the problem that we've been talking about in our chapter, how that when he came into his own, his own received him not, they didn't know. They're blind, they're deaf, they're dumb, they're depraved. There's none good, there's none righteous, there's none that seek after God, and there's none that understand, it says in Romans 3, 10 through 12. So there's this coming into the world spiritually dead and in need of the new birth. That's what the new birth's all about. You must be born again because you're spiritually dead. That's where this took place here. That's what happened the day they ate thereof. They were legally condemned to death in reference to they're condemned. They need justification. And then secondly, they are spiritually dead. They're in need of a new birth. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, much less believe. You have to be able to see and understand. And God is the one who brings that life, gives that understanding, gives that faith, so that that, that effectual call takes place. So that's what's going on here in the context. And then shortly thereafter, uh, of course, you know, Adam runs away and him and Eve hide. And there's a lot of finger pointing going on. And God says to Adam, not not for God's information, but just so we can see what Adam said. Where are you at? And he said, I was afraid and I hid, which is a picture of his self-righteousness. He's trying to take care of business by himself. He's not saying, hey, God, I need a sacrifice now. I messed up. But he's he's trying to hide it. He's trying to play it off. Like if we hide it, maybe have you seen kids? You ever seen your kids or, or your grandson? Either one when they mess something up, they'll physically sometimes sweep it under the carpet. <laughs> I saw something the other day on video where um, these kids and I remember not liking certain things on my plate and having to eat certain things. But these kids, they had one of those tables that came apart and had a leaf. You know, in it where you can make it longer or shorter. And this kid had stuffed all kind of food underneath there. And the dad was filming and found out and he pulled it up and there was like a burrito in there and stuff like that. Well, the kids were hiding. This is natural self-righteousness, hiding their transgressions. If the one in charge doesn't see it, maybe it'll be okay. Well, not only that, when they were approached about the situation, then Adam said it's the woman woman said it was the snake. Self-righteousness kept going. But anyway, after all that took place, there were some curses issued to the earth, to the man, to the woman, and to the serpent. And in verse 15 of Genesis 3, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Between your seed and and her seed, her seed, we're talking about Christ. Some people might say, well, that's a, that's a stretch. <laughs> no, it's not. Her seed, Christ, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. As Christ is stomping on your head, crushing your head, in victory, he had to die. That's what that's saying. As the word made flesh takes on flesh, as we looked at the last couple of weeks, to be a sacrifice, he has to die. And to crush death, hell, and the grave, and Satan's work, and all that stuff, he had to die. 
And I have no idea what Satan knows and doesn't know about this situation. I know there was some activity going on before the cross, and there was some interaction between some demonic stuff. And, and in Acts, where one of the apostles, I think it was Peter, said, if they had known that this is what this accomplished, <laughs> they wouldn't have participated in You see Christ telling Peter, I'm getting ready to go do this thing in Jerusalem. I'm going to accomplish my decease. And... Um, Peter says, oh, no, Lord, be it far from you. And Christ said, get behind me, Satan. You, you don't understand the things that are of God. You, you're just, you're out of it. This is why I came. I came to die. Have you guys been listening to me? This is why I came. That's all I've been talking about in my whole ministry. I'm coming to die to save my people. Peter didn't get it until later. So here you see the projection of what's going to take place in the future. This prophecy of right after the fall, right away, the seed's going to come and it's going to crush the head of this one that tempted Eve and, and seemingly caused all this mess. You see also God killed an animal and made coverings for them. So there was a death there that was pictured and typified the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to have a covering. So God killed some animals to do that. So her seed there is talking about Christ. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Kind of start getting into maybe a little bit more of the virgin birth. A little bit. You know, all these subjects that we're methodically kind of covering, we're not covering them in too much depth. We've covered them in more depth than times past. We've looked at like the eternal sonship of Christ. We've done whole messages, plural, on that. We've looked at the virgin birth, the incarnation, and we've, we've covered that in different places, different times, and spent more time. And those messages are on Sermon Audio. But we're kind of just stroking it with a broad brush here today, just looking at some proof texts of, of this idea of the Word made flesh and how that it fits in with the context of salvation. Matthew 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was this way. I think King James says this wise. For his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child, notice, by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, her husband, to be, being just and not willing to make her a public example, he purposed to put her away secretly. And as he thought upon these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take to you Mary as your wife. Notice this. For that in her is fathered of the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is one of our favorite verses. And she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for or because he shall save his people from their sins. That's why he's called that, because he's going to accomplish that mission for his people. Now all this happened so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive in her womb and will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. 
So here you see it laid out here. The virgin birth, the word made flesh. This was God and man together, the God man. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Now, uh, Paul in Galatians, he, you know, we had, we had talked about toward the end of last week, and we kind of reviewed this week, about an ingredient of the false gospel of perverting the person of Christ. And when you say that Christ did not come in the flesh, that's part of perverting the person of Christ. That's one way to pervert the gospel and change the gospel into another gospel is affect his person with a lie. Also, the other way is to affect his work with a lie. And that was what was going on here in the churches of Galatia, where they were these false brethren, as Paul called them. They crept in unawares, and they, by stealth, brought in this heresy that you had to add something to the righteousness of Christ, to the work of Christ, to add to it, to be totally righteous. And what they were doing were bringing in parts of the law, circumcision, certain dietary things, and the keeping of certain days. But the circumcision things seemed to be preeminent among this heresy. They were saying, the work of Christ? Yeah, you got to have that. But to be fully righteous and to be accepted by God, to be really in there with God, have acceptance, you need to be circumcised too. So that was the, the context there. And right out of the chute, Paul in uh, chapter 1 says, it's another gospel. It's a false gospel. It's another Christ. And whoever believes in that, he said, even if I preach that, I should be anathema, cursed, damned. He said, even if an angel comes from heaven and preaches that, they should be damned. It's a false gospel. So Paul wasn't fooling around here. He lays out his arguments of justification by the righteousness of Christ all through here. And then, you know, toward the end here, he goes into this word made flesh thing here. Verse four of chapter four. But when the fullness of time came, in other words, God's schedule said, this is when this is going to happen. Not just that, because everything that happens, God says, this is when this is going to happen. This right here was the biggest of deals. The word made flesh in order to be killed, resurrected. That's the center of the universe, the center of history. This is the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? That he might redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. So you see that he had to, and we, we talked a lot about this last week, he had to come and be like unto his brethren, as he said in Hebrews. He had to take on a body. It says later in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 8, that God prepared him a body to do this sacrifice. All the sacrifice, you know, Hebrews talks about all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They're, they weren't, they didn't work. They're not good enough. They just foreshadowed Christ coming. And here he is, God prepared him a body. He took on this body so that he might redeem his people that were under the law. He was made a curse for those that were under the curse of the law. Speaking of Hebrews, let's go there, chapter 5. We've talked about this incarnation. And when you talk about incarnation, it implies automatically a pre-existence. 
as I said before, we've, we've done whole messages on the eternal pre-existence of Christ as the Son of God before taking on flesh. But uh, I was looking at this a couple of days ago, and it was, it was interesting to me. I saw that it had, it had all that stuff and is covered in a bunch of our verses. Let's look at verse 1, Hebrews 5 and verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men. Ordained means appointed. In the things pertaining to God. That's you know the job description. That's what a high priest does. He does the things pertaining to God for men. It's a ministry. It's a service. So that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, who can have compassion on the ignorant and those who are out of the way, for he himself also is compassed with weakness. Now, we know that Christ came to be and dwell among men. That's what it says. It says that he tabernacled or dwelt among us. And as, as Christ, being the high priest, as it also says in Hebrews, he wanted to be likened to his brethren. And it talks about the experiences that Christ had to know what it is to be a human being, to be tempted and all these other things. So this is what it's getting at. You know, you've heard that phrase, you don't judge somebody until you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, that's kind of the idea. We already know in John 3, it said Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world. It says later the world was already condemned because they didn't believe. So we know that Christ came and was an example of so many different things, of perfection and humility. We looked at that humility last week, how that he took on his, took on flesh and became a servant and experienced the, the death, even the death of the cross. But it goes on here in verse 3. And because of this, he should, as for the people, so also for himself offer for sins. Okay, this is the difference between Christ and the other priests. He didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he had no sins. That's the stark difference. You know, you can look at types and pictures and shadows and examples and illustrations. And when you come to something that's different, you got to say, it don't match. This one's different. This priest, this high priest Christ, he didn't have sin of his own. The other priests, before they went into the Holies of Holies, had to have a sacrifice for themselves to be clean, to go in, to offer the sacrifice for the people. Christ wasn't like that. He was already pure, without sin. He who knew no sin was made sin. Verse 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, that he who is called of God as Aaron was. So even in the Old Covenant, the ones that were priests, they weren't self-appointed. The people appointed them. You had to be at a certain tribe. And they're appointed not by themselves. Someone picked them out, just like Aaron was. So also, Christ did not glorify himself to be made high priest. But he who said to him, the Father, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We spent quite a bit of time in times past talking about this begotten idea. And some would, uh, some would say that are trying to deny his deity would say, see, he just started. Christ just started right there when the father said that. So he was, he had a starting point. 
He didn't exist before then. Well, we looked at a message and we looked at several different ideas here. We had already looked at a, another text just a few minutes ago about how the, the father declared him. And this is more of the idea as is a declarative idea, an announcement. This is my son. Because we know he was around before this time. We know the covenant of grace, for example, before the foundation of the world. And there's language here and we can go to in a second talking about the same language about the Melchizedek thing here. But we're going to look at it in the next verse. We'll just go there. Verse 6. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If I remember right, that's Psalm 110, uh, 1 through 4, I think. So this is talking about the covenant of grace, the eternal covenant of grace between the father and son. Before there, there was not anybody around. And this was the, the language back and forth in the Trinity. And it was, it was talking about the decree that was going to usher in the providence of God to bring all the, these things into place where that Christ could be this high priest and Melchizedek typified him. Melchizedek is one who, he came on the scene and everybody's looking at Melchizedek like, where did he come from? Who's his dad? Where's he going? We don't know. He's got no beginning, no end. That's why he's like Christ. So there is a declaration that this is my son. Not, not messing with angels, not messing with anybody potentially on earth. This is my son. He's going to do the work. That was the sense. It was an announcement, a declarative announcement of that form of begotten. Verse uh, 7, for Jesus, here it is, in the days of his flesh. There must have been a time when he didn't have flesh. So here it's talking about in the days of his flesh. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though being a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. And again, that phrase, to all those who obey him, is just like the phrase in Romans 1.5, I think it was, talking about the obedience to the faith. It's just believing the gospel. Because the gospel is not an offer. It's a declaration. It's not says, here's the gospel. You want it? You've got the option to accept or reject, you powerful free willer you. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It is a declarative action. He became the author of eternal salvation. Again, here's redundant language, verse 10. We'll stop with that one. Being called by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what do we want to look at next week? So we'll stop, but I thought it'd be further than this. But the, the second half of that, verse 14 in our text, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and this part, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. And then probably full of grace and truth would be a separate message. But beholding his glory. Any questions or comments? Before we uh, sing one more song.